0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back again. I'm Sue Heilbronner, and you've reached Real Leaders Radio, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most innovative leaders in the world. Today, we have an unexpected guest for Real Leaders Radio because those of you who have been with me for a while know that I generally talk to people in business, primarily in early or mid-stage companies. Today, we're joined by Phil Weiser, outgoing dean of the University of Colorado Law School, and yes, I bet you're wondering why. By the end of this podcast, you are going to know why Real Leaders includes Phil Weiser of CU Law. Phil, thanks for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Sue.
0: Phil, just to be sure that everybody understands what we're gonna talk about today, while you are the dean of a rising, very successful and well-regarded law school in the United States and probably abroad, I want to talk a little bit about the innovation and the startup entrepreneur ecosystem you've built around the CU Law School. You ready for that? I can do that. And that's what brings us together, of course, because you and I have the privilege of co-teaching the class Philosophy of Entrepreneurship. It's a cross-disciplinary class, and that's been a pleasure. It's my third year doing it, and you've done it a few years as well.
1: I have. It's a great class, and if people out there want to audit it, just let us know.
0: (laughs) Phil, we start out Real Leaders Radio by asking our guests to give us sort of the three, four minute life story. And I, I told you I want short answers, but this one doesn't have to be that short tell us a little bit about how you landed here at
1: CU Law. So I was born in Montreal, Canada, where my dad was in medical school. And then when I was two, moved to the Bronx, lived there for five years while he was a resident. I used to have to ask people to walk me across the street when I was, uh, I guess, four or five, six years old. Then I moved to Westchester County when I was seven. And there I went to elementary school, middle school, high school. During high school, I was very involved organizing things. I organized a model United Nations tournament, and then went off to Swarthmore College, where I really got my entrepreneurial wings. Back then, we didn't use the word, but I took on an organization, Rat Tech, which provided sound systems to parties that I ran, was president of the student council, president of the debate team, and got a sense of leadership And I also got involved in political campaigns, working on my first one while in college and then working as the fundraiser for a congresswoman when I graduated, then managing a campaign for a town supervisor for an upstart who knocked off an 18-year incumbent. And went to law school because one of my professors from Swarthmore said, Phil, you can't just be a political hack. You need to go to law school. And I didn't know what I was getting into, but I loved the law school. I loved the law. Came out to clerk for a federal judge, which is something sometimes that you do after you graduate law school here in Colorado. Fell in love with Colorado. He recommended me to Justice White on the Supreme Court where I worked for a year. Ginsburg had taken his seat, and he was retired at the time, so he then lent me out to Ginsburg. So, there in that year, I worked for both Justice White and Justice Ginsburg. And from there, I went to the Antitrust Division in the Justice Department, working on technology and innovation in the aftermath of the 1996 Telecom Act, where Joel Klein asked me to oversee the Act's implementation from the DOJ's perspective. And then from there, I joined the University of Colorado Law School as a faculty member. I viewed that as an experiment, gave it a shot. A year in, I built this center, which is now the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship. I've taken a few leaves of absence along the way, most notably to work in the government again as a deputy assistant attorney general and as the point person on technology innovation at the National Economic Council in the White House. So I have had a varied career. Uh, The vast majority of it has been at the University of Colorado Law School. After my time in the government, June 2011, I came back to be the dean here. Another experiment, if you will, just to see what that would be like. And now I'm finishing my five-year term, and we'll see what comes next.
0: Is that it's a five-year term? Absolutely. Or could you have done another one? I could have done another one.
1: And I gave that some thought. It's a very demanding job. It's a hard time for law schools nowadays. I'm sure we'll talk a little about that. For me, it's not that my career ambition was to be dean of a law school. This was something that I gave a shot. I was interested in doing, developing my own leadership, I look forward to doing other things. I thought it was a good time to pass the baton and also give me a sabbatical I've been deferring to work on a project that I've been thinking about, which is entrepreneurial leadership in government and how that can make a big impact. All
0: right, Phil, I'm really tempted to talk more about Justice Ginsburg, but I'm going to let that go for now. I am going to mention that I think it's hilarious that Justice Ginsburg actually has a quasi-rapper
1: identity with, you know... Notorious are, RBG, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I a like book that. that I read to my daughter. Nice. I recommend it to everyone. She... She is an icon. For those who want more in Justice Ginsburg, she came here when I was dean, we had a fireside chat. The winning quote was when asked how many women did she wanna see in the Supreme Court, she said nine, because <laughs> there were nine men, why can't there be nine women? That's
0: a great answer. So tell us a little bit about why you chose working in a law school as a faculty member and then as a dean as your pathway
1: to increase entrepreneurial education. The way I think about my life is I am an entrepreneur in myself, in whatever I do, and whatever I do, I view as an experiment. So it's Lean Startup as your life, which is I try something, I get data based on it, I iterate, I try it again. When I went to be a faculty member, it was an experiment. I said to myself, I'm gonna give this two and a half years and I'll see what happens, I'll see if I like it. If I don't, I'll try something else. Part of my process of iteration as a professor was engaging the community, for me, My worry was, if you're an academic, you're irrelevant. You're in the ivory tower. And I knew the type of academic that I would be, assuming my time in academia lasted, was engaged in the community. So very early on, the idea of building a research center here at the University of Colorado was appealing to me. And during a now 16-year period of the Silicon Flatiron Center, we've done everything from holding different types of conferences, to holding the new technology meetup here, to holding a new venture challenge, which engages the whole campus in entrepreneurship, to supporting a Blackstone Entrepreneurs Network, which are scale-up companies getting mentored, to a startup summer program, which is getting summer students, internships, and entrepreneurial companies. So for me, academia is this broad opportunity to try things. And I've done that in my scholarship, in my teaching, and my community engagement. The platform provides extraordinary flexibility, a lot of respect, and real moral authority.
0: So those are the positive aspects of building out of academia for the platform on entrepreneurial mindset, which really I think is the overarching theme of your deanship. And I personally, as a lapsed lawyer, a Duke Law graduate, love the fact that you're bringing this mindset to law students in challenging economic times for lawyers or not challenging economic times, I think we both agree that this creates happier lawyers, happier people to hold this mindset. What are the downsides and the challenges of doing this in an academic environment?
1: We at the University of Colorado Law School have a legacy of 125 years. Anytime you choose to operate in an environment with a legacy that goes back that long, You are constraining yourself to follow certain norms, customs, traditions. As a state university, there is literally bureaucratic requirements. Some of the personnel who work in the law school are in the state-classified personnel system. So I am not a free actor as I would be in a startup company. I absolutely think about my job as the dean as I would as a CEO of a startup company. So I bring that entrepreneurial mindset and mentality to work. But I'm in an environment with a lot of constraints that come from – the fact that we have this big legacy, the fact that we have bureaucratic rules or traditions. And so one of the skills I have to exercise is negotiation, to understand, okay, how do I work with this constraint or around this constraint?
0: What makes you uniquely well-suited to navigate bureaucracy and still create change? Because it seems like that also has been a theme in your career, I imagine, including in the government roles
1: you've held. So Max Weber, who probably is the best writer of bureaucracy We've ever had said in a great essay called "Politics is Vocation" about government, which applies in academia too. Which is, politics is the slow boarding of hard boards. It takes both passion and perspective. Now, I've done a lot of construction in my life, so I can't quite relate to that. But I do get you need passion. You've got to have a vision. You've got to be passionate about it. Or you'll get nothing done. But you've got to have patience and perspective because you're playing a long game here. And when you're dealing with not building an institution. But reshaping or reimagining an institution, it is a different sort of exercise. So when I got here, I quickly said, we need an action plan. I didn't believe in strategic planning. This is before I got the phrase from George Campbell that now the cost of experimentation are lower than the cost of strategic planning. So I just said, we need an action plan that will guide our experimentation. And that's what I've done from the beginning, figuring out what true north looked like. And true north looked like what you said. We have to empower our students to be entrepreneurs in themselves. Early on, we had all the students read a book called The Startup of You, and we had Brad Feld give them a talk to our law students. We pivoted from there because for some law students that was such a culture clash, it kind of exploded their heads. So we went to another book by Carol Dweck called Mindset, which to me communicates a very similar concept, which is we are constantly working on our growth personally and professionally, and we need to view ourselves as a work in progress. And so that's the language I've then tried to adopt, and we talk to all our students about owning their careers, about building a portfolio of competencies that make them successful professionals. This is an exciting project, which is involving how we reimagine law school, and the progress we've seen here, I do believe, is a template for the country.
0: Phil, just to frame this conversation a little bit further, can you just
1: back up a moment and tell us what Silicon Flatirons is? Sure. So when I started this academic center in January 2000, I didn't know what it would be exactly. I wanted a platform for community engagement. And what it's become is really around three central missions. One is to engage the community in thoughtful law and policy discussions in the technology space. And it's been that for 16 years. It is literally the place where the concept of net neutrality was first talked about and has been refined. We've talked about wireless spectrum reform, which is helping to guide the incentive auctions now happening where TV stations will turn into wireless broadband operations and make money for the government in the process. We've also been a platform to support entrepreneurship here on campus in the community supporting a range of entrepreneurial activities, like some of the ones I mentioned before, including the New Technology Meetup, an Entrepreneurial Law Clinic, the Blackstone Entrepreneurs Network, Startup Summer, a Crash Course Series, et cetera. And finally, we're about our students. We're about preparing them for worlds in tech and entrepreneurship that are gonna be changing. And so we have a number of summer programs to support our students, working in technology companies, working in policy, and now one working in this governmental entrepreneurial leadership accelerator. Over the 16 years, Silicon Flanners has been many things. It's hard to explain those three buckets because we've been very active. Over the next 16 years, will be other things as well. To me, that's what entrepreneurship is about. It's trying new things, seeing what works, sticking with things as they're working really well, and if not, let them go and try new things.
0: So one of the things I know about you, Phil, from living in the Boulder community is, and I say this often, is even though I am a Duke Law grad, I consider my official academic home to be the University of Colorado Law School. And that is largely because of your approach and the approach of Brad Bernthal, a key member here of your faculty, to community, to community. And how this law school is part of the community. That syncs up with a view you also hold about sort of the dichotomy between network and hierarchical structures and companies and other
1: organizations. Can you talk a little bit about that? When I graduated college, I went to work for this congresswoman, and she told everyone, call me Nita, which is her first name. And all the members of her finance committee were called by the first name. And what that helped solidify in me, I'd had this before, was a view of we're all peers working together in a collaborative mindset and approach. When I went to clerk for this first federal judge, David Ebel, up till when I clerked for him, he had told his clerks to call him David. And he ultimately went to judge, which he felt was a term of endearment, kind of like coach. But for me, that was actually a bummer because I was used to the idea of relating to people one on one. I tell all my students here please call me Phil, or if you're more comfortable, call me Dean Weiser or if you're not comfortable with either, call me coach. And the goal that I have is, again, we are all in this together. When we teach the philosophy entrepreneurship course together, we'll tell our students, this course is an experiment. We need you as an active member of this experiment, giving us feedback. So whatever activities that I'm involved in, whether it's teaching, helping our students find jobs, projects like the New Venture Challenge, it's a collaborative enterprise with the whole community. And this is crossing boundaries. It's not within some predefined structure. We're all in this together. That is messy in many ways. It's less organized, but it's much more effective because the world we live in, we are all now connected virtually as well as in relationships. If you think about your life only in a defined hierarchy that you have to go up and down the chain, you're not going to be as effective. You won't get as much done. So as you advise
0: your students on building their networks, whether they stay in law, do other things, or a mix of things over their career, what do you think is the biggest, most important lesson in building a network for young people?
1: Don't be afraid to ask for help. This, for me, has been one of my biggest learnings as dean, and I've learned a lot. A lot of people, when they think about approaching others for help, experience existential terror and a range of voices in their head that say things like, She's too busy. That person doesn't really want to help. I'm just a student. I tell students those voices, that's the devil. You need to tune it out and instead think about we are in an environment where people want to help one another. And getting students to have that first cup of coffee with someone who they don't know asking for help is transformative because if you do it once, you realize, you know what, building a network isn't this painful, difficult thing to do. It's about relationships, it's about meaning, and it helps me live a more exciting and fulfilling life.
0: One of the things that I think about in my own network and and I I just think networking is radically misunderstood in our culture. I think still people view it as this thing about cocktail parties and how many business cards you've received. But as I think about networking I'm making connections between people that I think other people don't always see. But I seem to have an ability to do this without a database or a CRM of all the rabbis in my life and how to connect them to other people. How do you do it?
1: The same way you do it. I am not A-plus in this category. If I were A-plus, I would have a much more effective, even Google Doc, that had everyone in my network with some notations or some systematic system. I rely on my memory and go with my gut. And so there will regularly be days where I'll have visits with people, and I'll say, oh, you need to know Sue Hallbrenner, and I will introduce him to you. And you will do the same to me, and I'll do the same to others. We have a community here with that culture of collaboration and of people being willing to introduce each other. And so it, it does come naturally to me. It's something that this community encourages. And it's not something I do systematically.
0: Just because people are listening, it's worth noting that LinkedIn no longer serves this purpose essentially for anyone over 30 years old because there's simply too much data from too many years and too many ties that aren't even weak ties, but non-ties. They tried to do that with that recommend for feature. But if anyone out there has a great tool for a systematic management of mentor-mentee connections, uh, drop it to me at sue at Telsue.com And I promise I'll share it with you, Phil, because I think it could help both of us. This patience and perseverance that you talked about that served you in very, very large bureaucratic systems, what learning do you think you received in doing that that might be of service
1: for startup entrepreneurs? Steve Case gave a talk recently about his book, The Third Wave, and he said the following. The second wave of the internet, which is the wave that we're currently in, he said includes the apps economy. And a lot of entrepreneurs got spoiled because you create a WhatsApp app and you sell it and you think, wow, I've gotten rich in three years. He said a lot of the great problems that entrepreneurs are going to solve require, and he used three P's, but you can add the number of P's here. He he talked about partnerships, because you're not going to do it alone. He said persistence, because it's going to take time, and policy, because you need government policy about many areas. Once you're acknowledging that, then you're in my world, which is a world where change doesn't come immediately. You have to negotiate systemic institutional issues. You have to hang in there, and you have to play the long game. That's what he calls the third wave of the internet. It's going to change our lives. Some people call this internet of things, but it's not going to happen overnight. And so a lot of entrepreneurs who are thinking their path is what's up, are missing something because the real path of lasting change has to grapple with bureaucratic institutions that include government. So there's a great company in Colorado called Blinker that wants to help manage car sales. They're going to have to work with the DMVs across the U.S. That's going to take these sorts of issues. I don't mean to rib you, Phil, but I do think you mean
0: WhatsApp, right? Because everybody's now feverishly looking in the app store for the app WhatsApp. Did I say WhatsApp? You did. Sorry. It's a great idea. (laughs) That could be the name for our networking app that somebody could build us right now.
1: Exactly. Build us the WhatsApp app. not to be confused with the WhatsApp.
0: And in our next podcast, we'll interview you. You spend a ton of time with a lot of startups in the ecosystem, not only in Colorado, but beyond. You obviously have connections with Blackstone, which broadens your reach as well. What do you think are the three misconceptions of building entrepreneurial companies that you've observed that you would impart to new
1: leaders? So the first one is that it happens really quickly. So we've covered that one. You need to go into this with a passion for doing something and being willing to hang in there. The second misconception is that building a team is just like a magical, easy thing to do and not something that's going to require persistence, care, being purposeful. If you want to build a high quality team and build a culture, you need to go in with your eyes open and it's going to take time and effort and thoughtfulness. It does not happen as an accident. And then the final point is that you're going to hit your sweet spot right away. There's a lot of iteration is going to happen as you as a team work to solve a problem that may look differently by the time you finally do hit a sweet spot. That's part of the learning. And so if you go into an entrepreneurial experience with the attitude of, I want to solve a problem that I'm passionate about with people who I really want to work with and I'm willing to hang in there, you're much more likely to be successful than if you are thinking, I'm going to get rich quick.
0: When we look at all of the entrepreneurial activities that are going on in universities all over the country and the world, I have a feeling that I get sometimes when I think about accelerators, and and you know that I run an accelerator or co-operate an accelerator called MergeLane, and the feeling is, is entrepreneurship really the thing, and Ought it be such a gigantic focus at almost every major university and plenty of colleges in the
1: United States right now? So we have a big challenge as educators in terminology. My first answer is entrepreneurship is the thing. Yes, we're stuck with the word. Let's embrace it. My longer answer is that word has certain connotations, mostly high technology startups that get people rich. And that's not productive because most people on college campuses, that's not where their mind and hearts are. So if that's what you're selling, many of them aren't buying. What we're really trying to sell is competency-based learning, which means articulating competencies people need to develop along individualized learning plans that make people efficacious. Or you could say we're building everyone to be an entrepreneur themselves, which means you've got to build the skills you need to be successful. And if you think about your life as an entrepreneurial enterprise and you're building yourself up for your life, that's a pretty powerful mindset to have. If we can give every college student that mindset, even if they study anthropology, they're also building up empathy or design-centered thinking. If they study math and computer science, also, think about business or think about working in teams across cultural barriers. All of that learning is what college campuses need to embrace, and it doesn't start or stop in the curricular sense. It's it's your whole life. It's curricular, extracurricular. It's everything you do. I'm in total agreement with you and
0: love how you just outlined that. I just wonder, is there a tension between this idea of academic learning, competency-based learning, as you said, around empowerment or a dynamic, nimble mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset, and these competitions like New Venture Challenge that are happening at college campuses everywhere, which actually are spinning out real companies. So you and I both know that the New Venture Challenge has spun out fantastic, real, venture-funded companies that include Revelar, Pana, Here
1: in Colorado Didn't Shinesty do it? Shinesty did it. Yeah, they didn't. Chris on this podcast. They they didn't win it. They didn't win it. Let's just be clear. Well, so but that's my that's my segue. (laughs) Right. These competitions are not about winning. It's about experience. People should do these competitions not because they're committed to a company that will be funded and be successful. It's because there's an idea they want to experiment with and they want to try it. For example, one of my favorite entrants in our New Venture Challenge is someone who build a sustainable goat farm. If you have gone to the mountain goat dairy, you can learn a little bit about what the New Venture Challenge produces. That is a great result. Cheese, really cheese. good cheese. Really good cheese. What the new venture
0: challenge produces. I think that's a great point. So then, if we take what's going on here with the learning methodology that you're bringing, not only to the law school, but frankly to the entire campus, and actually, really to the entire community through Silicon Flatirons, what do big companies, government agencies? and law firms need to do to attract the attention of students who are being just totally turned on by this kind of education all over the United States.
1: So there's so much there, if I can break it down a little bit, Um, and I'm gonna start with law firms. They're among the most interesting and difficult. First, where is the state of law firms and law schools? It's for worth telling our audiences because not everyone knows this. Law firms hit the proverbial fan in the Great Recession. Most larger law firms have cut their hiring in half and should have a hiring post-2008, some by even more than that. That has led to, in many cases, a almost direct fall off in law school applications because the old model of law school experience that you and I were both sold was you go to law school, you rack up some debt, you get a six-figure job at a law firm, and that law firm will train you because all law school taught you how to do is think like a lawyer. And the law firms had embraced that mindset really that you could call an entitlement mindset. They thought they were entitled to their clients giving them business. They were entitled to bill for training of these students they were hiring. And the students thought they were entitled to get these six-figure salaries. After the Great Recession, that model breaks down. Applications to law school fall off by 40% over a five-year period. So think about being in a business where you lose 40% of your customer base. There's an article in the New York Times about the University of Minnesota, quintessential article, Minnesota's response, what do you do? You cut your class from 250 to 175, you cut your faculty, you cut your staff. You keep doing the same model, you just do less of it. Our Response University of Colorado, where we're really entrepreneurial, we reimagine what law school should be like. We engage in this conversation about competency-based learning. We develop professionals who can do lots of things, like Chris, who started Shinesty, like people who go into governmental positions, nonprofits, larger companies who can hire directly, and yes, some law firms hire too but those law firms that are more imaginative. And so the big challenge for these institutions, I put law schools in this, law firms, government institutions, and big companies, is are they so committed to, we've always done things this way, this is how we do things? Or do they say, wait, how should we be doing this? How else might we do this? The students here at University of Colorado Law School and the campus more broadly, like you said, they are hungry for entrepreneurial problem solving. They're hungry for trying things that are different than the traditional model. And so we've engaged them in this community in this experiment. And the initial results are really encouraging. From the class of 2015, we ranked 16th nationwide in total employment outcomes for this year, We ended up with 3,300 applications, our all-time record, up 10% from five years ago, during which it was a downturn of 40% nationwide. People are noticing what's happening here. We've written up recent reports talking about it. It's not that hard to do, but it does require a vastly different mindset. If you lock yourself in, this is how we've always done things, call that a bureaucratic mindset or an entitlement mindset, that's what you're going to keep doing. If you're in a world that's not changing— You can afford to be in that mindset. The reality of today's world is things are moving faster. You need an entrepreneurial mindset, whether you're in a large company, a law firm, or a governmental agency. Well, let's talk a little bit about government, because I know this year you've been doing even more
0: to integrate government with education here at CU Law and the broader campus. Talk a little bit about what the most recent work that's happening in the state of Colorado that Silicon Flatirons
1: is really leading. So we have this governmental entrepreneurial leadership accelerator program, and Sue, what you've done with Merge Lane is an inspiration here. We took this idea of an accelerator and said, there are people in government solving problems. Could we give them an accelerator, same basic model, three-week boot camp, followed up with primary mentors and secondary mentors, solving problems that culminate in a pitch night? We will have a pitch night before the mayor of Denver in July. That's going to be a chance for these four teams, each of which include one or more law students, to present their solutions to problems the city of Denver has. The theory here is twofold. One is give people in government a chance to solve these problems and bring new ideas to the table. You might get some good new solutions. Number two, and this is the more impactful one, you train entrepreneurial leaders in government and help continue to transform a culture that we have here in the city of Denver, which is special. We've had several mayors committed to performance improvement. And we've got a rock star chief performance improvement officer in Dave Edinger, which has built the foundation for this program. If we're successful in this, this is a model that other cities and regions can adopt, helping government do more with less, because government can take advantage of technology or entrepreneurial problem-solving experiments to do things differently. And we can't be successful in government keeping the same things that we've always done while the world is changing around us. Just to be sure we spread the credit a little bit, this effort is supported by Blackstone Entrepreneur Network? So- the Blackstone Charitable Foundation has been a fabulous partner for Silicon Flatirons. Um, we have, a, in the Blackstone Charitable Foundation, a partner who supported the Blackstone Entrepreneurs Network that we're running here through Silicon Flatirons. The foundation has also supported this governmental entrepreneurial leadership accelerator as a pilot program. Um, they really have been a, a great partner.
0: And it's a massive sacrifice by the city of Denver, right? They it went through, they picked their people who they thought would be great candidates for this new mindset, gave them time off to be allocated toward boot camp. I mean, just an incredible project.
1: Yeah, I would use the word it was a massive experiment and a massive investment. If it ends up not being successful, then we can call it a sacrifice they made. How will we know? So that's a very good question. I think there's two direct measures of success, and then there are indirect measures that we'll maybe never know. So the direct measures are, if we get some ideas to solve some of these problems, like how do we get more people doing composting, or how do we help remove barriers for homeless people getting services, we'll see progress directly. Secondly, as we monitor these officials who go through it, and we see what their careers look like and what impact they make, if we find some of the best leaders in the future for Denver, where people who did this program, that's powerful. But the reality is, all sorts of connections and learning is happening that's going to be invisible, and a lot of the benefit we're not going to know about. That's one of the interesting things about this entrepreneur community, is so many connections, learning, collaboration happens. You know generally that we have this great environment, but you don't always know how it manifests itself.
0: Based on your understanding of the landscape, the startup ecosystem, both from the entrepreneur side, the investor side, and the lawyer side, for the lawyers that are listening to this podcast today, how do you think they can be most effective serving startup companies and entrepreneurs who are really enmeshed in this experimental, nimble, entrepreneurial mindset?
1: So you've touched on the key word, which is service. Lawyers need to start with a service mindset. How can I help you? And part of the problem, like I said earlier, for a company is true for lawyers. If you're thinking, how am I going to make money on this? If that's your first question, you're not going to mesh. Your first question needs to be, how can I help you? And the money will come later. There's a great phrase that Brad Feld has talked about. He's got a book coming out called Give First or Give Before You Get. That's what you need to think. I want to help other people. I want to get involved. And then it'll come back to help me in ways I can't already imagine, but... They will, they will come. The more subtle point is this
0: question of having startups that are lodged in a consciousness of experimentation and having a consciousness around the practice of law hmm. that is risk avoidance as as a mandate, I think those things sometimes don't go well together. It makes some lawyers very successful in serving startups just based on mindset. How do you resolve that?
1: What we're doing at the law school is working hard to develop this mentality in all our law students. So this course that you've mentioned, philosophy and entrepreneurship, it would be wonderful if 10, 15 years from now, every student took that course or a course like it. I taught another course this year that I called Ethics, Professionalism, and Creative Problem Solving but it covered much of the same ground. And this is back to the labeling issue I mentioned earlier. People might think if I'm learning about ethics and professionalism, they'll, they'll take the lesson, but they don't wanna be entrepreneurs. But it could be the same lesson, which is a mindset of what does my client want, what experiments can we take, and how do we manage risk? Lawyers have developed, traditionally, this aversion to risk. Some people went to law school because it seemed like the safest thing to do with their careers, so it plays into that bias. The world we live in has risk all around us. We can't avoid it. We need to just manage it appropriately. And if lawyers think that way, they're incredibly valuable partners and enablers to companies, to government institutions, and academic institutions.
0: Phil, you're raising a son and a daughter, and I routinely hear you talk about your in-home education of your kids. Are there differences in raising a son and a daughter from the perspective of generating
1: leadership qualities? There is. It's amazing to watch the gender differences that young. So I have to hold constant the following interesting point. My daughter is much more of an introvert. My son is much more of an extrovert. So that may color a little bit of my answer. With boys, the issue is much more behavior. With girls, it's much more emotions and emotional control and how to regulate your emotions. And I've tried very hard with both kids to talk to them as adults about the challenges they're facing. Um, I've read books to them. I've listened to podcasts, including this podcast, Sue. They really like it. And then use that as a jumping off point for conversations about things like risk, entrepreneurship, marriage, relationships. My goal is to maintain a relationship with my kids that is um, driven by intellectual curiosity, honesty, and continuous communication.
0: funny. You just reminded me. My dad passed away 16 years ago, and it was a very important force in my life. But you just reminded me, Phil, of a conversation about being his kid. I was probably about seven years old. I remember we were standing by an early 1970s Oldsmobile that we owned at the time in the driveway. And my dad just looked at me a little bit hopeless and said, Sue, I just don't know if I can really understand how you operate. Your highs are so high and your lows are so low. And that really is the point about connection to emotions and raising a girl. Thanks for sharing that. That was a nice memory for me. Can everything that you've built here at CU, and I know you've contributed to building on platforms that other people created ahead of you, can it endure as you move out of the deanship and we welcome a new dean here at CU Law?
1: That's the ultimate test of leadership, which is, as I said before, it's building a team. It's building ideas and processes that outlive you as a leader. And so I dearly hope so. I believe so. What is special about what we've done is it's not all me and I leave, it's all gone. We've built lots of processes, ideas, courses, and it is a trajectory and it's an emerging tradition That is special, and part of what makes me optimistic is the results that we've got from it. When you look at the admission statistics from Austin Peer Law Schools, that's not an accident, and I should credit others in the community. We set up a dean's advisory council, had people like Jason Mendelson, Brad's partner, others from the community, helping us iterate on how we told our story to prospective applicants. We've built a lot of infrastructure in place, and the great test of my leadership is going to be how it does without me. I do have to underscore I am uh, on sabbatical next year in a research project, but I'm not going anywhere. I really want to help contribute to our continuing project here at CU.
0: Great. And I look forward to contributing to that going forward, too. If you're thinking about going to law school and you have the mindset that allows you to think that your legal degree could be used in all sorts of ways as you grow in your own leadership, you definitely should be considering CU Law. Not only because of the curriculum, the academics, the faculty, and the incoming dean here at CU, but because of the connections to the community and true superstars in this community that have become intricately woven into the fabric of this school. There's my plug, Phil. What do you think? That's a great
1: plug. You can also take Sue's course. So there's a, a second reason to come.
0: There you go. So thanks for joining us on Real Leaders Radio today. And thanks to our amazing guest, my friend, Phil Weiser, the outgoing dean of the University of Colorado Law School. As always, Real Leaders Radio is brought to you by Merge Lane, the Accelerator and Investment Fund for startups with at least one female in leadership. We're also brought to you by the Conscious Leadership Group which brings conscious leadership principles to great leaders and companies they run through coaching and events. Learn more at MergeLane.com and Conscious.is. To learn a little bit more about me, your host, Sue Heilbronner, or Real Leaders Radio, check out TellSue.com. See you next time.